I have been so blessed this week and stretched. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> it's been an interesting week. I started out with uh, dropping my phone in the toilet and uh, ruined my phone. I've got this little cheap flip phone at Walmart now. <clears throat> and the next day or so, our van, my wife has the van up in Floyd County, and it broke down. Some of you have asked about it, and I just, I talked to the mechanic today, and I was afraid that the timing belt had ruined my engine. That's what I was afraid of. We were praying about it, and why do these things have to happen now? <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I talked to the mechanic today, and he said, the van is all done. He doesn't think there's any engine damage. And he said, somebody stopped in and said to tell me that the Lord paid the bill. So, yeah, and uh, just interacting with, with you all this week, um, I've been very blessed, and thank God for that. Thanks for that song, Ben. It's just a beautiful song that you led there. <clears throat> now, don't raise your hand, but I did suggest and ask you on the first evening if you would consider giving at least five minutes extra a day to pray for these meetings. And I'm sorry to say I didn't make it to the men's prayer meeting tonight. I was sharing with a brother, and that was, that was our prayer time, I guess. Um, but I was blessed as I came into the basement, and something I hadn't seen all week, but there's been some youth down there praying. So thank you, young people, for praying. And so I just want to encourage us to continue to do that, to take, that, take some extra time and, and seek the Lord and pray for these meetings. This week is turning out a little different than we thought with the funeral, and so that's a divine appointment too, and uh, I have the privilege to be there for, that, for the funeral. I told you youth that I wanted to bring a message toward uh, speaking more to the youth, and you know, I hesitate to say that because the last time I did that, none of the adults came the night we had youth night. And uh, <clears throat> so I'm thinking to do that Sunday evening. I still want to do that and do that Sunday evening, but I'm planning to look at you, youth, as I share the message, but I'm asking the rest of you to please come, because I just think it's so, these things, um, scriptural principles for influencing our church are critical for all of us, really. <laughs> the only difference is I'll just be looking at the youth as we share that message, Lord willing, on Sunday evening. <clears throat> all right, can we stand together and say our uh, theme verses? John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. There may be someone here tonight that hasn't been here this week. We're using the King James Version and starting in verse 37 with the word Jesus. Let's say the two verses and the reference at the end all together. Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said... Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. John 7, 37 and 38. Thank you. You may be seated. One other announcement. I mentioned this last night. If you guys have a, a family photo that is extra, and you could write your names on it and, and give one to me for a keepsake. 
to take home, to remember you by, that would be wonderful. I was going to say that earlier. <clears throat> Come with me now in your imagination to a hill far away. Matthew, Mark, and John call this hill Golgotha. Luke calls it Calvary. <clears throat> on this hill we see a man on the cross. It is Jesus. According to Isaiah 52, this man was so wounded that he no longer looked human. The NIV says in verse 14, his form was marred beyond human likeness. This man looked like a slab of meat, so grotesque that you couldn't help but look on. And then suddenly a darkness came for three hours. You pick up the story in Matthew 27, verse 50. It says, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were open. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of their graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. So in the midst of this darkness comes a loud yell and an earthquake. The whole hill is rocking and shaking. Huge boulders are ripped in half and stones across the entrance of tombs are broken in two and dead people inside awake and walk out of their graves. Across town in the quiet, empty temple we hear a different sound. It's a ripping, tearing sound. The curtain that separated people from the most holy place was torn beyond repair, ripped wide open from the top to the bottom. What does this veil, torn veil, symbolize? I believe it symbolizes the kind of relationship that Christians can have with God. There need not be a veil or a wall between us. We can be as close to God as we want to be. That's the good news. The bad news is that it takes death to get rid of the veil. If we look back at verse 51 that I just read, we see that it was exactly at the point of Jesus' death that the veil was rent. I don't know how you find it, but sometimes we find a relationship with God is dry and distant. There seems to be a veil there. Sometimes we blame it on the devil, and at times I think this may be true. But too often there is another reason for the coldness is because there is a part of us called self that is not yet dead. And unless and until we can bring self to the cross, we will try and try and continue to find a veil between us and God. Self has to die before the veil can be torn away. Here's a quote from A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God. He says, The answer usually given, simply that we are cold, 
will not explain all the facts. There is something more serious than coldness of heart, something that may be back of that coldness and be the cause of its existence. What is it but the presence of a veil in our hearts? It is a veil of a fleshly fallen nature living on, unjudged, uncrucified within us. It is the close woven veil of the self-life. I've entitled the message this evening, Exposing the Veil of Self. I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6 for a text this evening. Exposing the Veil of Self. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So I'd like to look at this a little bit verse by verse as we go through. The we that's in verse 1, shall we continue in sin? I think he's talking to Christians here. This is not necessarily addressing unbelievers, I don't think. I think he's talking to Christians. So you and I are falling into that camp. We have been, we say we have been saved, we've been redeemed, we've been cleansed, we've been forgiven. And shall we now continue in sin? Shall we do that? We used to sin. Sin used to dominate. Shall we continue in that now? And he says in verse 2, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein. So he's saying there in verse 2 that something had, there, there was an inner dynamic, there was a, something within us, some kind of a flesh principle, I guess, that, was, that used to be in control, that used to dominate. And so something took place. He didn't say, doesn't say yet what happened, but something took place that now we are dead to sin. The same we that he's talking about in verse 1. We are dead. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Verse 3. Now he starts to allude to what is that something that happened that, that brought us to this truth that, I mean, these are spiritual things we're talking about. We're talking about being dead to sin. All of you are alive here tonight. But the question is, are you dead to sin? So how did this take place that this thing that is spiritually true is really true in your life? Are you really dead to sin? Then, then what, ha- what it says in verse 3 has to have taken place in your heart, in your life. Know ye not. Didn't you know this? This is how it takes place. This is how it comes to pass. That so many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, didn't you know this? <laughs> you know, sometimes I think... We, we, we don't help people maybe the way that we should or that we could when we, when we try to usher them into the kingdom of God. And maybe we should go to verse 3 here and say, don't you know this, that if you're going to be baptized, it's a baptism into his death. Don't you know, know ye not that so many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, if you're, if you're born again and saved and baptized into Jesus Christ, it was a baptism into his death. Did you know that? So this, 
This is what something happened. Like Jesus went through it in reality. He, he actually did physically die. He actually did get buried. He actually did rise from the dead. And the same thing on a spiritual level has to just walk in the footsteps of Jesus. This has to happen to me to where I am baptized into his death. I don't know how many people I have heard say things like this. You know, when I was baptized, I didn't understand. You know what? I can say that too. (laughs) I didn't understand like I should have. And of course, all of us, as we grow and as we mature, we look back and say, man, sometimes we say, was I even a Christian back then? But somewhere along the line, we need to understand what this means. Being baptized into his death. It is a recognition. I I don't even know how to describe what all this is. But here's some things that I think about. Just like a recognition of the, the domination of the flesh that was in my life or is in my life. You know, that so, so that if I, you know... Sorry about that. I used those language again. I, you know, I did this again. Sorry about that. You know, and I confess my sins as they occur. But when I come to the place that I realize there's this domination of, of flesh and self, it's, it's actually dominating me. And then out of that, my heart, my defiled heart acts and reacts. And when I realize that, And, and, and I acknowledge that not only have, do I commit sins, but there's a domination. I'm under the domination of the flesh. I'm a slave in Egypt, so to speak. And it bring, when, when, that, when that realization floods over me and, and, I, and it drives me to my knees, maybe literally on my face before God. And then my will is, is, is set upon the table and the Lord says, you know, you know, from now on, you can't do what you want to do. You can only do what I want you to do. Are you willing to pay that price? Not just confess all your sins. You know, there's stuff that, that's not even wrong to do or not to do, and I just want to decide for you when you can or when you can't. And you say, okay, <laughs> baptize into your death. I think perhaps we do that many times. It's not an event, Christianity, folks. I don't think. There does need to be a beginning. But it needs to be a journey. Baptize into his death. Think about that. Is that your experience? Is that really true of your life? Buried with him by baptism into death. Jesus literally died. He literally was buried. And he literally rose again. And you and I do the same thing on a spiritual level. Fortunately, you don't have to die physically. And you don't have to die eternally either. Hallelujah. (laughs) 
But you know, if we don't go through this process, we will die eternally. <clears throat> Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. Now, if we, if we got that, if we grasp that, you know, we... The way we do it is we have instruction class and then baptism, and it's a sort of a celebration, and I think that's good. And yet I think there should almost be fear and trembling when we get down on our knees and, 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 and we represent in a spiritual way, you know, what is really that I'm being baptized into the death of Christ. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Jesus rose from the dead and he, he literally lived again. And it's in this process, like if you and I go through this process, it's like we've been saying all week, there should be newness of life. So if you go through the form and there's no newness of life, then something is not right. I guess what I'm getting at here tonight is that you know, all of us have our struggles. <laughs> I don't have time to tell you all of mine. <clears throat> but what I'm getting at tonight is what is your normal? What is your normal? Is, it, is, it, is a veil your normal? You have a few little bright moments here and there? Or is your, is your normal, hallelujah, I'm, I'm serving the Lord and He is my joy and my song and I'm connected to Christ and then, boom, my father dies. Or, you know, my brother, he, he stiffed me in the business, or whatever. We run into these things, and we have to wrestle with it. But my normal is, I'm walking in newness of life. That's what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Baptism somehow represents spiritually what happened to Jesus literally. And death comes before the life, the newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be guaranteed to also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, and see here it describes in verse 6 exactly, now here's what happened to you when you were baptized into his death. The old man is crucified with him. The old man is crucified. These things are spiritual, and I don't understand how it all works. I just know that it's true. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him, and that he died, he died in his sin once, and that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. <clears throat> what does that mean, dead to sin, the old man is crucified, and reckon ye also yourselves to be dead? What does that mean? Did you lose the ability to sin when you became a Christian? Anybody here? How about the desire to sin? 
Did you lose the desire to sin? I mean, somewhat we did, I hope. <laughs> you know, we are tempted, so then that tempted means we do, that's a desire. If we're not tempted, there's no desire. To, I'm not tempted to do some things. I'm not tempted to eat spinach. <laughs> I'm, there's no desire there. I will eat it, by the way. If somebody serves me that for dinner, your dinners have all been very good. <clears throat> so we don't necessarily always even lose all the desire to sin. But thank God, I will say this, I have lost some desires to sin. But I do, I do face temptations, yes I do. So what did we lose? I think what we lost was, when we went through this process, we lost the right to sin. You don't have the right to sin anymore. You took on the identity of Christ when you were baptized into his death, and you just do not have the right to sin. <clears throat> And then we also have a choice, and it mentions that in verses 11, 12, and 13. Reckon ye also yourselves. You do it. You reckon yourself dead unto sin. And then verse 12 says, let not sin. You have something to say about that. You're, just don't let it happen. <laughs> don't let it happen. And then verse 13 says, neither yield ye. So, you know, I look at the first part of the chapter and it looks like, man, it's just something, some switch flips in me and I'm dead. You know, I just, and then I read these next few verses like, oh, wow, wait a minute. Neither yield ye, let not. So, okay, there is a choice that we have at that moment to not to yield. Romans 13 verse 14 says, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh. Provision has the idea of forethought. Thinking ahead of time, making a way so that, you know, when it comes, when that opportunity comes along and you were driving by and there was something you shouldn't look at and you knew that you shouldn't look at it, but you made provision and you went that way. Or whatever it may be. <clears throat> All right, so. Now I want, you to, I want us to look at one more scripture in the, in the message here tonight. Turn with me. This was the death chapter. <laughs> Let's turn to the life chapter. That's Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. Verse 1, if ye then be risen with Christ. So this, this, these verses here assume that all this death stuff is all, all taken care of now. And, and you've been risen. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. You know that word, set your affection? That also has the idea to exercise the mind to be disposed to a certain direction on things above. And it's a choice of the will to set your mind that way. <clears throat> You're dead, it's, it's, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then she also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication and cleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, 
You know what? I'm just going to jump. I've got a parallel Bible here. Let's jump over and read it out of the NIV so we understand these words. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as such as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Now drop down to verse 12. I'm going to jump back to the King James again. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, vows of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. So we go through the death, we come to the life, and he says, mortify, put off, and put on. I would like to look at five fruits of self and look at some evidences and ask ourselves honestly and humbly, ask ourselves tonight, is there any evidence of this, this uh, fruit of self in my life? <clears throat> Any internal or external evidence that would verify that self is still alive. The first one I'd like to look at tonight is self-admiration. What I think about myself, my appearance, my abilities, my possessions, often in comparison with others. Love of praise. A secret fondness to be noticed. Clever ways of drawing attention to myself in conversation. How much or how highly can I think about myself? You know, some people say, well, you know, flying too high is pride. Flying too low is low self-esteem. And so can you fly between the radar just right? And, and, and so you don't think too highly and don't think too lowly. That's a, that's a tight fit. It's a tight window. James McDonald said this. He said, psychologists prescribe high self-esteem as a solution to low self-esteem. The Bible says we think too highly of ourselves. The answer to low self-esteem is not high self-esteem. It's no self-esteem, no estimation of self. And I think what he means is not that, oh, I just, I hate myself and I'm in the gutter. It's not that, but that I'm not focused on myself. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about myself. You know what? (laughs) When I come for meetings, which is not that often, but I'm here this week, you know what? I've wrestled with that very thing. Let me ask you this. What is the impulse of the heart when 
Others notice and compliment your appearance, your possessions, your abilities, or your learning. What, there's like a little tick in our heart that flips up or flips down. Which way does it go when you're publicly recognized? Which way does it tick when others are singled out for praise in your presence while your own achievements are ignored? Do I often wonder what others think of me and adjust my life to try to gain their approval? Do I feel unsettled when I think others may not approve of me? Am I more willing or quick to offer my help and abilities when I know I will get recognized? Do I struggle with low self-esteem? Self-admiration. The second one is self-indulgence. In verse 5, the, the King James says, inordinate affection. And that has to do with a depraved or a vile affection, an affection for something that God calls sinful and wicked. Do you struggle with that? A desire for forbidden fruit, inordinate, in, 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 in inordinate proportion, in a large proportion, inordinate affection, sin, little indulgences, little allowances to my flesh, little disobediences, self-indulgence. Verse 5 mentions covetousness, greed, the desire to have more, the desire for advantage. Verse 2 says to set your affection or to exercise the mind in a certain direction on things above. And so things that are not necessarily wrong in themselves can become wrong when my affection is set upon it. Self-indulgence. Are you drawn to a love of ease, a catering to your appetites, a repeated hankering for short-lived pleasure? Do your joys and sorrows fluctuate around personal interests? Is there a yearning for money and earthly possessions? Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Are you self-indulgent? Number three, self-defense. Verse eight speaks of anger and wrath. A short fuse, irritable, a touchy spirit. A dispensation, a disposition to resent and retaliate when disapproved of or contradicted. Do you show, throw sharp words at others? In your attitude or in your words? Self-defense. Verse 8 speaks of malice and blasphemy. Use the word blasphemy. And that, that word is not so much like a swear word, taking God's name and using it as a, as a cuss word. Not so much that is the meaning, but it's more slander and speech that is injurious to another's name. Elsewhere, that same word is translated evil speaking and railing. It could be gossip. Or it could be blame shifting. Adam modeled that for us, and we've been tempted with that one ever since. You know, this is one thing I learned about working in the factory at Newmar. I was 
Well, I still am. I used to be a swingman for the cabinet shop. And um, you come into the unit and there's a big scratch on the wall. And so they don't know who, which group is responsible. So they call these different swingmen to come in. And, and the first thing we want to say is, that's not mine. You know, the, or I might help fix it if you guys know that I, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. So what's more important than fixing the problem is making sure that you all know it's not my fault. Self-defense. You know what? Sometimes we're just wrong. And it is so easy to defend self at that moment. We love more myself than I love the truth. Self-defense. Number four, self-righteous. Verse 9 says, lie not. Hypocrisy. Hiding my faults. Attempting to leave a better impression of myself than is really true. That's called lying. Their sins and faults are always bigger in comparison to mine. Jesus said, Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite. First cast the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote of thy brother's eye. Somebody said that a Pharisee is hard on others and easy on himself. And a godly man is hard on himself and is patient with others. You know, in verse 12 and 13 of this chapter here, it talks about forbearing one another and forgiving one another. As Christ forgave, so also do ye. Self-righteous. Number five, and the last one I have here this evening, self-preservation. I think it's when I'm protecting my comfort zone, like there's something going on uh, maybe. Here's an example. There's something going on. Uh, there's something bubbling, and I know I ought to deal with it, and I don't really want to deal with it. And you know what I say next is, you know, I know what's going to happen if I talk to him. He always reacts. You know what I'm doing at that moment? I'm taking all the responsibility and I'm putting on that other person. You know what I'm really doing, though? I'm just protecting myself. See, it's me that doesn't want to have to deal with that. It's self-preservation. I don't want to get out of my comfort zone. I don't want to be ill thought of. I don't want to get uncomfortable. I put up a fence to protect my reputation. Things that are uncomfortable, it might be witnessing to a neighbor, it might be confronting a brother, something that's painful or brings me fear. I put up self-preservation. Old self just doesn't want to have to get out of its box. Some time ago, I was talking with somebody that I dearly loved. 
And they were asking me about something that somebody else had said about them. And the assumption this person had was, you know, I didn't do that. I haven't done anything wrong. And, and I think this other person over here verified that I didn't do anything wrong, right? Then I was supposed to say what this other person said. But I knew what this other person had said. <laughs> and this other person had said, you know, you're, you've got, you're irritable. You're touchy. You're, you're, you're hard to deal with. And I was trying to figure out, okay, how can I soft pedal this? How can I, you know, put so many words into my description of what was said that it actually, it, what should be a spanking comes out of the hug. <laughs> you know what I mean? And in my mind, I was casting around for a soft way to do it, and then all of a sudden the light bulb came on. You know what I was doing right at that moment? I thought I was protecting them. But you know what I was really doing? I was protecting, I was protecting me, too. But then I thought, you know, maybe the Lord, well, I know the Lord, he wants to prune away at our flesh, doesn't he? And sometimes it takes the, the most painful ways when somebody I dearly love and respect comes along and says, you know, brother, oh, man. And at that, just at that moment, the light came on in my heart, in my mind, and I said, no, no, I'm going to have to say the truth because God is all about pruning away at the flesh. See, when God prunes branches, he prunes all the branches. If you're, if you're reprobate, he'll cut you off at the bottom, the scripture says. The branches that aren't bearing fruit, he cuts off at the bottom. And they go into the fire and they are burned. But the branches that would be more fruitful, he cuts off from the top. And I just saw at that moment, God wants to prune self. And was I going to stand in the way of that and soft pedal that? And I couldn't do it. And I had to say, you know what they said? <laughs> and I saw how much it hurt. But it was true. You fall into that self-preservation. <clears throat> Here's a lesson I learned. Don't soft pedal when God is in the business of flesh peeling. <laughs> and neither do you use it as an, as an excuse to just pound people over the head. You, we need to mind the spirit and things like that. It just seems like so often God uses the most painful and embarrassing ways to deal with our flesh. Why doesn't he just do it in the closet when nobody else is watching, nobody else can see? In closing tonight, as Christians, too often we have patterns of the self-life still within us. I just want to read over those again, the ones that I listed. Self-admiration, self-indulgence, self-defense, self-righteous, and self-preservation. Stuff that is supposed to be dead is still alive. Sometimes we're blind to it. Other times we know it, but we tolerate it, minimize it, and make excuses for it. And the result is a subnormal Christian experience that we begin to believe is normal. God doesn't want that. He has something far better for us. But until we are willing to recognize and deal with self, the veil between us will, and Him will not be torn away. 
I just come to this question again at the end. What is your normal between you and God? Is there a veil there? Is that kind of the normal for you? Is that the honest truth about that? Is it your normal to have low passion, no hunger, no fire? If that's true for you, it's very possible that something that is supposed to be dead is still alive. I want to open it up. We just want to have a time of prayer. And I just would like to open it up this evening again for your confessions. Let's pray. Father in heaven tonight, help us to be transparent. Lord, it's, it's you know, when you, when you deal with our flesh, it'd be nice to just go home and go to my closet and just tell you about it, Lord. Somehow we don't feel intimidated by confessing our sins to you. And I'm thankful for that. But Lord, perhaps there is someone here tonight that should just be transparent and broken and honest and humble. And maybe it's an evidence of self that was not even mentioned tonight. And to just stand up and admit before my brothers and sisters that I've been struggling and I want to confess. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed, Scripture says. Lord, you said in your word that God resists the proud and you give grace unto the humble. So give us grace tonight, Lord to be transparent, and to confess our faults if there should be some here tonight. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.